The title I chose for this paper, The Seduction of Elsewhere, must not, uh, must not mislead because the term seduction is ambiguous. Etymologically, it means uh, to let oneself be transported from the Latin ducere and from the particle se denoting separation. For Susan, this has meant, first of all, this, the, the desire, the impulse to go, to move, even with her own body. The English term travel contains the root of the French word travail and suggests the idea of difficulties and adversity to overcome, and also contains the meaning of transit, of crossing, with the following idea of change. But the seduction and fascination for the other countries that Susan has visited and studied have never been translated into an exotic attitude um, of idealization, but rather into a curiosity for knowledge, for opening new horizon, a stubborn will to understand, to interpret, and thus to translate this experience into English language and culture. Perhaps discovering since childhood that exotism is relative and thus connected to the multiplicity of points of view has saved her from the blind infatuation of faraway and unknown countries. A roaming is taking on new meanings, those of the knowledge and experience of the other and its acceptance without enhancement and lack of rigor. When Susan comes into contact with another language and culture, she possesses the admirable capacity of distancing herself from her own language and culture. Distancing, distancing and abstracting herself mean the desire of understanding the cultural linguistic differences and diversity in order to translate them in her own language. I have been able to note and verify this extraordinary quality of hers this summer when we spent some time together in Sardinia, everything that happened to us, every detail of day-to-day -day life, were opportunities for Susan to translate terms, particular Italian expression in English. Each time she would stress with punctilious precision the, sh the shades that were lost in translation. Susan would translate ably and quickly, and through her translation, she would keep well focused the different relationship that the two languages, in this case Italian and English, would create with their native cultures. For this reason, I believe that the travel literature has meant for Susan mailing, meeting other languages and culture. For Susan, in fact, languages are a means of knowledge and exchange. Travel literature always implies the translation between two cultures and languages. The other reason that uh, has uh, driven uh, Susan to the study of, of travel literature is the fact that it allows transversal roots, a hybrid genre between fiction and reality, between anthropology and history of ideas, a field of studies that encourages the meeting between different subjects, encounters that can be difficult but that are always alluring and absolutely necessary 
since they allow for dialogue for exchange. Sometimes from this meeting, something that the scholar in one specific field would, would have uh, foreseen can arise because his or her attention was focused on other aspects of the matter. Susan has always hoped for a type of comparative literature that would be open to other fields of studies. Hence the constant help that she has given me in writing a series of important European projects that were open to integrated and transdisciplinary studies. The last reason that prompted Susan towards travel literature is that there exists a very close link between traveling and writing. Traveling as Dacia Maraini, a writer who, like Susan, as the passion for traveling inscribed in her DNA, says uh, uh, the travel literature resembling writing in its flow. A desire to go, but also the intense wish of telling another seduction, that of writing. Susan, too, has more than once tried her hand at creative writing, as her latest book, Reflection on Translation, shows. A precious booklet that over and above furnishing important comments on translation is written in a highly readable prose. On this subject, I would like to recall an essay that sums what I have tried to say about Susan's fascination towards travel literature. The essay is called Lost in Translation. In it, Susan narrates to her beloved friend and traveling companion, Jeffrey, her difficult experience as a translation interpreter of a dialogue between some women in Galicia, where the language spoken is in an, an Iberian language and it is neither, neither Spanish nor Portuguese. So, uh, and in the second part of my contribution, I would like to deal with a topic which is linked to one of my favorite research uh, field, utopian studies. I have chosen this uh, topic for two reasons, mainly for two reasons. The first is linked with my biography. At my age, I mean, it's quite difficult not to go back to my life. I gave one of my first seminars on utopia as a literary genre here, thanks to um, Susan, at Warwick University. Um, the second one is a political one. I share with Susan the strong belief that the value and strength of utopia resides in its method, in being built of a part denstruence, the deconstructive analysis of reality in which the writer operates, and a part construence, the planning of, uh, of an alternative reality. So this is why I have chosen this topic. To wonder about the meaning of the journey in utopia means restudying, retracing the intricate maze, the intimate connection that exists between utopia as a literary genre, travel literature, and the imaginary voyage. Dealing again with this difficult problem of the family connection between these three uh, literary genres through the European history of utopia, I think can help to better understand some crucial points of utopia as a literary genre. The voyage foregrounds the mythical component of utopia, 
underlines how much the fictional aspect is a fundamental feature of this genre. Utopian constructs, in fact, are based on a delicate equilibrium between fiction and reality. And finally, oblige us to wonder yet again on the ambiguity of the role of the traveler as a character and the pact he, she establishes uh, with the reader. I will have to, uh, naturally, for the sake of space, only give a few hints, a few methodological suggestions, because the problem of the relationship between these genres is a very complex one. In fact, dangerous generalization um, can be a risk if one does not take into account the different evolution that the mythical constant of travel has uh, had in the various European literary tradition and context. From my very first studies, I have, I have tried to highlight how the voyage to Utopia was not simply a technical device to allow from the swerving, the cutting, the distancing from the familiar and the well-known in order to land onto the utopian otherness. The journey with all, all, uh, all its adventure, its, its various stages, going initiation permanence, return, its dangers, its hurdles uh, to clear since it is root in myth shades with symbolic and metaphoric meaning the old structure of the utopian paradigm. Utopia, the place of harmony and absolute good, does not appear to the, to the visitor at once, as a whole. It is never a datum, but it, it is the offshoot of an itinerary of progressive discoveries. Utopias appear to the traveled character as a conclusive point of an initiation journey. In this sense, it seems to me that the journey had a great impact on the very structure of the utopian project. The knowledge of another country proceeds in stages, either through the dialectic dialogue between the traveler character and his or, or her guide, or through a real path to the traveler takes inside Utopia itself. Since the beginning, the two literary genres of, uh, of Utopia and imaginary travel have thus intertwined. And from the 17th century onwards, when Utopias be become Utopian novels, especially in French uh, Utopian tradition, they have clearly tended to identify themselves with the travel novel. It is by now a well-established fact, and those who have studied the origins of Utopia, of Utopian genre in the modern period have well outlined that Utopian literature gained great momentum from the geographical discoveries, both on the level of political and moral reflection and on that of writing strategies. A typical example of this, and a telling one, are the explicit references in the genre archetype Thomas Moore's Utopia to Amerigo Vespucci's, uh, Vespucci's uh, travels and to the expert navigator's features uh, Moore endows Raphael Isloday with. 
But I also think that it is important to note that there exists from the very beginning of the genre a clear, this is a, an, an interesting point, a, a clear antinomic attitude on the part of the utopian writer uh, toward travel. Thomas Moore and Francis Bacon endow the journey with a high heuristic value, but they perceive it as Plato had already done danger and menace in the contact with the strangers. The foreigner is an element of disturbance vis-a-vis -vis an already consolidated order. Hence, the, the almost obsessive desire already in the genre's archetype to regulate travel, contact with the outside. There exists at the heart of utopia an interesting tension between two tendencies. On the one hand, the movement and the opening embodied in traveling. On the other, stasis, closure, fundamental elements for the perfection of the utopian construction. Studying closely the difficult relationship between utopia, travel literature, and imaginary journal, it appears that there exists between these genres a fascinating intertextuality, that, that, it is, uh, that is a circularity between these texts that creates a series of recurrent topoi and stereotypes relatively not only to a series of places, but also their inhabitants. We know, for example, the familiarity Moore and Erasmus had with Lucian and with the travel reports, as it, as it is known that Columbus had on his table not only Mandeville's travels, but also the Milione. I would start by giving a few concrete examples of this close interconnection between utopian travel account and imaginary journey from the period of the great discoveries between the 16th and the 17th century. A feature that unites utopia to travel account is the continuous intermingling of truth and fiction, and that is all the more astonishing if one thinks that in the 16th century Europe, thanks to this geographical discovery, opens to the knowledge of new facts that challenge the old known world. So on the one hand, we had a work such as Francis Bacon, The New Atlantis, in which the author describes <coughs> a hypothetical society, a fantastical projection of a society dominated by the ideal of scientific research, imagined not in the future, but in, in a not yet explored geographical areas of the real world. The New Atlantis opened with the, the following word. We sailed and from Peru, uh, uh, where we had continued by the space on the whole here for China and, and Japan by the South Seas. It is thus a fantastical construction, an imaginative fiction that could yet be true. On the other hand, Columbus Log and his letter, which aim at registering facts the discovery of new lands, but which reveal, because of their inexactitude and distortions, a perturbing blend of realism and romance. This mixing of realism and romance was present in Columbus, 
he, he was always trying to link his new data to Marcos Polos, and uh, uh, he still had engraved in his mind the prodigies of the, and the monsters described in Mandeville's travel. This fiction-reality relationship, the constitutive element of utopian literature and travel accounts, appears every, uh, very evident also in the utopian strategy that the travel narrator enacts to communicate his experience to the reader. The intent of the traveler, as that of the character narrator, is not just, as William Dampier says, to divert the reader, but also to inform and to persuade him her. Hence appears his continuous preoccupation of being credible, plausible, a preoccupation that manifests itself in the linguistic weave through often repeated expressions such as I have heard, I have seen, I say, which mark the presence of the eyewitness who has personally seen, heard the things he is about to describe. The authentication techniques, the strategies he enacts, prefacing discourses in which the author distinguishes himself from the other utopian authors, geographical coordinates, mention of illustrious travelers, scientific discretion, constituting a guarantee of, uh, of seriousness. First of all, um, I mean, uh, I, um, I do not have time to go into the detail of these uh, um, strategies. First of all, first-person narrative that imitating a ship's log makes uh, the uh, utopist uh, uh, traveler a trustworthy eyewitness. The latter amply shows his suffering and explorer's abilities, using specialized vocabulary, detailed description of the fauna and flora of the places visited, questioning other travelers and correcting their mistake, discussing the climate, the topography, the cartography. Having been a witness becomes a guarantee, as I was saying, of truth and accuracy and of, of, uh, of uh, authenticity. It must not be forgotten that travelers bore the legacy, this is an important point, the legacy of a tradition that viewed great travelers, first of all among them Odysseus, as brazen liars. Concerning this, the echo of an ancient writer such as Lucian, who had made lying and playing between reality and fiction the constituting basic element of his narration, sounds in the letter accompanying utopian writing in general uh, and in more on utopia specifically. Like Lucian in the prologue of his true history, Morse declares certainly less openly, but certainly very sharply, the illusory nature of utopia. His language is deceptive and its meaning must be searched for under the veil of a paradoxical fable. All of the culture surrounding Moore seems to say that words can hide truth and that in many cases, because of the nature of the subject treated, they cannot help but 
uh, do so. Speech is misleading and truth does not abide in the apparent plot, but in the deeper sense buried under the shallow words. And here there is a quotation from Lucian in which, I mean, uh, he is saying that I am a liar. This is a very uh, interesting quotation. Um, and, and I mean, uh, uh, is uh, uh, some very is, is a very important quotation because I mean, in some other uh, travel uh, writing, you can find an intertextuality with this uh, quotation, and also this is the I mean. The uh, letters uh, uh, to Peter Giles, Moore's letter to Peter Giles, in which he says that there is this uh, uh, mixture between <coughs> fact and fiction, and uh, he is explaining also the use of litoti, uh, of the rhetorical figure of litoti. Uh, so this is uh, something uh, um, important, and then another uh, another important uh, uh, feature. Uh, that it is common in uh, tribal literature and utopian literature is, uh, I mean, the, uh, uh, that uh, of plain telling established by Montaigne in his essay of cannibals. And this is uh, uh, another, uh, another interesting quotation. And this man that I had was a plain ignorant fellow and therefore the more likely to tell truth. And so, I mean, it's, it's a long quotation. I, I, did, I do not have time to, to quote, but I think this is a, an important quotation. So, but despite the explicit statement of keeping to a simple, unembellished style, the travel narrator, like the utopian narrator, nevertheless has a literary intention that is never wholly removed uh, as transpired, transpired from the proems consinitas, from the literary quotation highlighted as soon as the subject re requires. Uh, and uh, before uh, ending uh, my contribution, I would like to stress uh, uh, um, three, uh, two other points. The second point, uh, I would like to examine the relationship between the rhetorical strategies used by utopian writers and travelers in order to describe elsewhere. The moment of the traveler's meeting with otherness register a traumatic experience because the old and the new come in contact. And this perturbing moment in which both the traveler and the native are possessed by uh, what uh, my friend Stephen Greenman says, this sense of wonder, by astonishment, by the sheer amazement felt when confronted by something completely new. And this wonder uh, and sense of displacement, of estrangement, that Columbus felt faced with the marvelous of the natural landscape of, of the new lands and the sense of displacement and estrangement, uh, I mean, you can find the same uh, feeling in uh, uh, the utopian uh, traveler experience uh, in front of the land of perfection. Uh, from this uh, state of, of amazement, of wonder, each of the uh, stylistic and the rhetorical strategies to describe the other place where the traveler lands. 
And in this type of narrative descriptive techniques are quite great relevance because they must provoke a sort of induced vision in the reader. The stylistic procedure of estrangement registers a double movement of removal from and at the same time of assimilation of the other. This process of assimilation, what is different into what is familiar, happens in the description of elsewhere, <coughs> not only by the retrieval of myth, but also of topoi from the literature of the past. Models of this are the description of New Land in Columbus letters and Captain's Log, where the retrieval of the topus of uh, Logus Amenus and the myth of the Garden of Eden is evident. For the fertility and the abundance of the land refer to the, land, the legend of the land of cocaine, the gold from the Garden of Asperides, and the spices uh, which in Haiti, there were none, were a feature given to the fabulous Orient, not only to evoke <coughs> the exotic aspect of the landscape, but also su to suggest traders' deals. And so, I mean, this is a, a quotation um, in a letter uh, of Cristoforo Columbus to um, Luis de Sant'Angel, but I mean, I, I didn't have time to. Uh, to read, but I mean, uh, in which, uh, I mean, the, the rhetorical strategy of describing the elsewhere are uh, very evident. And uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, finally, I would like to uh, give uh, some uh, few consideration on the status of the traveler character, who is a link between the old and the new world, who is set ambiguously inside, inside and out of utopia. Uh, to finish this consideration of the relationship between reality and fiction in utopian travel literature, I would like to underlie how this subtle game between the opposite poles of fiction and reality involves both the figure of the first traveler character in the Jean archetype and the figures of uh, Columbus. Uh, Raphael Isloday is a character invented by Moore's imagination, but he has also the feature, as we have seen, of the real seafarer coming from unexplored places with his sunburned face, his unkept clothes. Christopher Columbus is a real person who nonetheless immediately became a myth as transpires from the pages of Fernandez de Oviedo of Mysterious Origin, a dreamer who recounts extraordinary experiences no one can share. In their uncanny contact with the new, both Raphael and Columbus must, must learn to decipher dreams. They become great decoders of dreams. But there exists a great difference between the utopian traveler and the conquering, tra the conquering traveler, a difference residing in their inten intentionality. The utopian voyager lives because he is at odds with the society he lives in. He is seeking new forms of government, of new ways of living. The, first, the thirst for knowledge 
of the conquering voyager is embodied in the will to possess new land to name it. There is this sense of both natural and ideological appropriation of the new world discovered. The letters sent by Columbus to the Spanish kings give a detailed list of the rituals of the acts of the, for the possession and naming of the island. On the contrary, the utopian traveler does not colonize. Moreover, he is colonized himself by the inhabitants of Utopia. The history of Utopia, I think, therein, therein reside there's great speculative and projectual strength marks a continuous challenging and making relative the principle on which the Western world is built through the proposal of alternative projects. Thanks. Thank